Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 26. We have just finished with the Last Supper. The disciples and Jesus had sung their Hallel Psalms, finishing up the Last Supper, and they went out to the Mount of Olives, somewhere on the Mount of Olives. That was Matthew 26, verse 30. We discovered that. We're going to start here with verse 31. We're at Thursday night of Passion Week. It's getting late. Passover supper's already over. We're heading on into midnight of Good Friday. Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now that run away that Jesus told his disciples they were going to do, the H, the Holman Christian Study Bible margin says, Stumble, you will stumble because of me. The NIV says, You will fall away because of me. Because you will run away because of me. Well, how, did, how has this occurred? Well, Jesus is now talking to 11 disciples because J- Judas has already betrayed him. There's 11 left. Peter denied Jesus three times, famously. That left 10 disciples, and all those 10 disciples fled. As we see in verse 56 of this chapter, they all ran away. Jesus quotes Zechariah to prove that this is what's going to happen, to show that what was going to happen was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is a, the quote right here. Quote, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13:7 says this, Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It's an obvious reference to Jesus. I will also turn my hand against the little ones. That's predicting the trouble that was going to come on the disciples when the persecution of Jesus carried over into the persecution of the disciples also. Now, the shepherd here in Zechariah is obviously referring to Jesus the Messiah and the ones who were scattered. The ones who were scattered, those were the disciples. That's not too difficult here. We go to Matthew 26, verse 32. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus knows that he's going to be resurrected. He predicted it. He told the disciples. I doubt they were very much in a mental state to hear it, but at least he told them. But Jesus gave him a rendezvous point in Galilee. Why? Well, because Galilee is outside of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is where all the bad guys are. The Pharisees and Sadducees are going to hunt down Christians like a fox hunts down, hunts down a chicken. Here's some scripture showing that the disciples were to rendezvous in Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And apparently he told them not only in Galilee, but to a particular mountain where they were supposed to go to. And they did. Jesus also told the woman who came to the tomb, the first woman who witnessed the resurrection, he told them to go to Galilee. Matthew 28:10. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Actually, he didn't tell the women to go to Galilee. He told the women to go tell the men to go to Galilee. Also, an angel told the women, Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7, but the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Just as he said, notice Jesus had been predicting his resurrection all along. You'll be given the sign of Jonah. People had trouble believing him, though. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's he's thinking ahead. He's thinking that he knows he's going to be resurrected. Now, think about this. If he knows he's going to be resurrected, why would he suffer such agony in Gethsemane? Well, I think it's perfectly understandable that he that he underwent such agony in Gethsemane, even though he knew the end was going to be good. He was going to be resurrected. I mean, after all, don't we Christians know we're going to be resurrected? And when you're facing persecution, torture, death, are you going to sweat drops of blood? Probably so. Jesus was a man just like us. This 
idea of meeting together in Galilee after the resurrection, it was something that was probably down in the disciples' conscious, consciousness, and they probably recollected when they finally realized that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. It took them a while, but when all the resurrection appearances started being collected and brooded about, and then they said, oh, yeah, he said he was going to be resurrected, and he said to go to Galilee, and they headed out to Galilee. So Jesus, even in his hour of trial, is thinking ahead about his little church, his disciples, the the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, which today has over a billion people in it. Matthew 26, verse 33. Peter told him, even, even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. Famous last words. He denied him three times before the crock, cock crowed, as Jesus later said. Here's some other examples of Peter's impetuosity. He jumped out of the boat to walk to Jesus on the water. And people always say, it, well, you know, Peter's impetuous and act like that's a character flaw. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I think it took a lot of guts to get out of the water myself. And you can call him impetuous all you want. I, I wouldn't have gotten out of the boat. The rest of the disciples didn't get out of the boat. And he did. And I think it's to his credit. At Caesarea Philippi, told Jesus that Jesus would never be killed. Never, Lord, never shall this be happen to you after Jesus said he was going to be crucified. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Well, that makes Peter look pretty bad. But on the other hand, it shows how much he loved Jesus. He didn't want him to die. Clark says here, Peter is vainly confident and that it is strange that the church of Rome would build their church upon such a rock. A nice anti-Catholic statement there by the Protestant Adam Clark. Peter was a flawed man, just like all the disciples were flawed men, just like every human being on this earth that follows Jesus is flawed. But he had some remarkable characteristics, I think. And he might have been cowardly during the crucifixion, but after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, he was very brave. And as a matter of fact, he was crucified upside down, I think it is, or was it in boiling oil? I think it was maybe both. I, I forgot what the tradition is, but he was tortured to death for Jesus. So, I mean, he, he acquitted himself well. Proverbs 28:26 says this, The one who trusts in himself is a fool, but one who walks in wisdom will be saved. Well, Peter was trusted in himself, and according to that proverb, I guess he was a fool. I'll never run away, he says. Jesus answers that very quickly in verse 34. I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus was quick to puncture Peter's shallow pomposity, was he not? Now, there's a harmonization problem here because in Mark chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus said, I assure you today, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, some people try to harmonize that this uh, so-called discrepancy by noting that some early manuscripts of Mark 14:30 don't have the twice in there. But there's no need to go rely on manuscript error. As John Gill points out, cocks crow twice at night, once about midnight and once they crow louder at daybreak. And so Jesus is referring to the daybreak crowing of the rooster in Matthew 26 when he just mentions one crowing and in Mark 14, when he mentions two crowings, he means a crowing at midnight and a crowing at dawn. So basically what Jesus is saying is before dawn, you're going to deny me three times. Now this thing about roosters crowing twice, I used to have trouble with that, but one time I was in Shandong province doing a seminar with a friend of mine with some Chinese church workers, and we were locked up in the room with the window shut so that the cops and the neighbors couldn't hear us, and I remember, of course, I was very tired, as always, and lying in the bed. It's the middle of the night, and I hear these roosters. We were in the middle, of, kind of in the countryside, and these roosters just crowing like crazy in the middle of the night. And I remember thinking to myself, roosters are not supposed to crow in the middle of the night. What's wrong with these Chinese roosters? Are Chinese roosters different than American roosters? As it turns out, no, they're not. Roosters do crow in the middle of the night. It's just something, I, as a city boy, I never knew. I live in the country now, and there's a rooster that lives next to me. 
And one time I couldn't sleep. I was walking around outside on my porch, and doggone if the rooster wasn't crowing in the middle of the night. So it happens. So that is not a problem, skeptics, liberals, and Christ deniers, people who want to tear down the Holy Scriptures to suit your selfish lust. It's not a problem. We go to Matthew 26, verse 35. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. So Peter's already asserted once that he wasn't going to deny Jesus. Now he's denying his denial. He does it again, even to the point of death. If they kill me, I'm not going to deny you. And this time he has all the other disciples chiming in with the same thing. And all the disciples said the same thing. Famous last words. This is a classic case of being confident in the flesh, confident in the flesh without the Holy Spirit. Mark 14:31, the parallel passage says he, Peter, kept insisting in perfect tense there. He kept on and on and on. I insist. I'm not going to deny you. I'll die with you. John Gill said Peter's spirits were raised to a greater pitch of resentment when Jesus said what he said. And he expressed himself in stronger terms and in more peremptory and self-confident language. Well, we know what happened. The disciples were just as foolishly cocky as Peter was. They were all saying the same thing. However... As John Gill points out, to their credit, they were expressing abhorrence at the thought of Jesus dying. I mean, that was true. You got to look at both sides of the fact. They were cocky and overconfident, but they were showing how much they loved Jesus. They were ignorant of their own weakness, of course, but they were showing how much they loved Jesus. They probably wanted Jesus to know they had nothing to do with Judas's betrayal plot. That must have been a shock to find out one of the disciples was going to betray Jesus. Kind of hurt their camaraderie a little bit. They wanted to let Jesus know they had much as love, much love for Jesus as Peter had. Now, at that point, Peter probably was actually willing to die for Jesus. But he changed his mind when he was faced with the actual danger. And that's just human nature. You and I probably would have done the same thing. And it's interesting that all the disciples did not live up to their affirmations of faith in Jesus because they were all scattered. We drop down to verse 6, it says, and they all scattered. It says point blank, explicitly, that all the disciples headed out. So Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. That leaves 10 disciples, and all 10 of those headed for the hills like scared rabbits when the the Romans and the Jews and Judas Iscariot showed up at Gethsemane to arrest them. Matthew 26, 36. Now they're leaving the Mount of Olives. They're going down the Mount of Olives to a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives, probably called Gethsemane. That garden, the, the place of that garden has been lost. The tourist people in Israel, of course, know where it is because they need the tourist shekels. And they show you to this nice olive garden. Gethsemane means olive oil press, a place for squeezing oil from olives, which makes sense. There were olives on the Mount of Olives. And it was a nice place, apparently, wherever it was, because the disciples used to go there as a matter of course. Luke 22:39 says this, he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And it doesn't say the Garden of Gethsemane, but it does say to the Mount of Olives. In John 18:2, Judas who betrayed him also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And that verse is more is clearer because Judas knew exactly where to take the bad guys to arrest Jesus because he knew that Jesus and his disciples often met in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they went to a, a an a place that they were familiar with. It's become famous in history now because where Jesus suffered his passion, his his horrible emotional distress over what he was going to face. He tells the disciples, he said, sit here while I go over there and pray. And the disciples he's referring to is eight of the eight that are left besides Peter, James, and John. Because Peter, James, and John is going to take with them to pray and about a stone's throw away. 
Jesus possibly felt the eight were the weakest in their faith, as John Gill says. Peter, James, and John, of course, were the three disciples that Jesus confided in the most all through the Gospels. And so this is following his same pattern. They were kind of the leaders of the apostolic band. Verse 37 of Matthew 26, taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the two sons of Zebedee, of course, are James and John, then taking along Peter, James, and John, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, James and John, according to John Gill, were perhaps the two strongest disciples who were best able to stand the shock of seeing Jesus in his agony. I don't know. Maybe so. Those three were Jesus' favorite disciples. Why were they? I don't know, unless Jesus saw something in them that he didn't see in the other eight, that they were stronger. They were leader types. The fact that Peter, James, and John were favorite disciples is shown in passages such as in Mark 5:37, when Jesus healed the synagogue leader Jairus' daughter. Mark says this, he did not let anyone accompany him. He, Jesus, did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17, 1, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who did Jesus take up there? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, why did he take three witnesses with him? Well, of course, he wanted somebody to support him in prayer. A lot of good that did because they fell asleep. But the, probably his intention was that he would have witnesses. There would be witnesses of what happened. In fact, we wouldn't be here talking about what happened in, in Jesus' agony if they had not been awake long enough to hear what had happened. So two or three witnesses is what was necessary by the law, and there were three witnesses there to tell us what happened in that garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus said he was sorrowful and soul was troubled even unto death. This had been going on. He'd been sorrowful six days before. John 12, verse 27, now my soul is troubled. This is according to John Gill. John 12, verse 27 says, my, now my soul, my Jesus' soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. So you see, Jesus was contemplating his death during Passion Week. He knew he was going to die. The whole time he knew he was going to die. His being sorrowful shows that he was fully human, just like any other human being in that situation would have sweated drops of blood and would have been agonized in their soul. Jesus was too. In fact, if you read the thing and, know, and think of what he went through and put yourself in his shoes to think how horrible it was, it will bring tears to your eyes. We read this so often and we get hardened to it. It just rolls off our back. But if you just sit there and contemplate what that man, Jesus, was going through and you think he did that for me, my gosh, how could anybody have suffered that much? What are some of the reasons that he was distressed and suffering? There's three possible reasons. One is impending death, of course. Also, how about the torture he knew? He knew that he was going to be crucified, and he knew that crucifixion was a horrible death because he knew that the Jews had no jurisdiction over capital executions and that they would turn him over to the Romans. He knew that, and he knew what a crucifixion was, and he knew he was going to have to go through that. And also the third thing that he was distressed about was he was going to be bearing the sins of the world. Now let's look at all three of those things. He was distressed because of his impending death. Now, Adam Clark disagrees with this, and I think this is silly that he does disagree with this, because I think of anybody that's going to be facing a death like that is going to, is going to suffer, is going to be sorrowful, is going to be distressed. But Clark says, no, nah, Jesus isn't going, to, isn't going to be distressed about that. To, for him to be distressed there, that would, Clark says, rob Jesus of his excellency and manhood for him to be afraid of this. Oh, really? I'm not a man if I'm sitting there about to be hung up on a cross and I'm a coward for being distressed about that. I know, of course, all I'd say was, Adam, what would you do if you were in that situation? Would you not be a little bit distressed? What normal person wouldn't be afraid in that situation? Adam Clark goes on to say that Jesus couldn't be worrying about his impending death because he knew that in three days he was going to be raised again. So therefore, he should, shouldn't have to be worried about being tortured on the cross. That's supposed to make crucifixion easy? 
that in three days he was going to be raised again and he shouldn't be worried about being crucified on a cross. That's nonsense. So, in my humble opinion. So, his impending death, the impending torture, the means of that death were reasons to make him distressed. Now, let's talk about what some people say is, and I believe is true, the main reason that he was distressed there in the garden, because he was contemplating bearing the sins of the world. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you become a Christian, even the slightest sin makes you feel terrible. You say, oh, God, why did I do that? I wish I hadn't done it. Now, of course, I know we're supposed to confess those sins. We're supposed to acknowledge that Jesus' blood has washed away all those sins and that they are far away as the east from the west, and God does not look at the sons. He accounts them to us no more. I know all that, but still, sometimes psychologically, we don't do what we should do, and we start feeling guilty over a little sin we did. But now think about all the sins of the world that you're going to have to face. Let's say that you were a murderer, a rapist, a bank robber. You voted for an antichrist Democrat or something. I mean, I don't know. Let's just think think of all the sins in the world that you've done, and to think that Jesus, and, and think how guilty you would feel for that. And Jesus had to feel that guilt as he was contemplating bearing all that guilt. Here's what John Gill says, quote, in great consternation and astonishment at the sight of all the sins of his people coming upon him, at the black storm of wrath that was gathering thick over him, at the sword of justice which was brandished against him, and at the curses of the righteous law, which like so many thunderbolts of vengeance were directed at him. That's no wonder he was, as Luke says, sweating drops of blood. The word distressed, the Greek is ademonane. Ademonane. This word is used by the Greeks to denote the most extreme anguish which the soul can feel, excruciating anxiety and torture of spirit. Matthew 26, verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. He's talking when he says to them, Jesus is speaking to Peter, James, and John. The other eight disciples are left out of the story from here on. Jesus says, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Now, what does that mean to the point of death? Well, it could be that he was so grieved that death was about to arrive. In other words, I'm at the point of death, and so my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. That's Adam Clark's view. John Gill's view is that Jesus knew that his sorrow will be relieved up until the point of death. In other words, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow, and it will remain in sorrow all the way up until the point of my death. Well, how about a third option I just thought of here? How about, I'm, I am so sorrowful that that sorrow is about to drive me to the point of death. It's about to cause me to die. I think that's really what it means. He's very, very sorrowful. Now, here's another good quote from the inimitable John Gill, who knows rhetoric. Quote, his soul was beset all around with the sins of his people. These took hold on him and encompassed him, which must in the most sensible manner affect his pure and spotless mind. The sorrows of death and hell surrounded him on every side insomuch that the least degree of comfort was not let into him, nor was there any way open for it, so that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. His heart was ready to break. He was brought, even as it were, to the dust of death, nor would his sorrows leave him. He was persuaded until soul and body were separated from each other. So Jesus tells his disciples to stay where he was, and he's going to go away so he could pray by himself. He wanted to be alone with God, but he wanted his disciples there praying for him. He, and he says, stay awake with me, which they didn't do. That's what he wanted them to do. Luke 22, verse 40 adds a detail. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, the trial that you're going to go through when Judas and the temple guard and the Roman soldiers show up to arrest me, it's going to be a trial and they're going to be chasing you down like mice. So there's going to be a trial coming. You better pray that you aren't tempted to succumb to the trial and, and, and fall away from the faith, which, of course, is what they did temporarily. So 
Matthew 26, verse 39 says, Going a little farther, this is a farther away from Peter, James, and John. Luke 22 says it was a stone's throw away. So going a little farther, a stone's throw away, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now Jesus is praying like we should pray. God, I don't want to go through this, but if there's any way you can work it out in your divine plan, please don't let me go through it. But if you want me to go through it, i got to go through it, so let me go through it and give me the strength to go through it. In other words, not my will, but your will. That's a hard prayer to pray. Application time, as I just said what I just said. If you're facing a trial and you don't want to go through it, you need to pray. God, I, I don't want to go through this trial, but if you want me to, I will. Is this what you want me to? I'll have to. And we have to go through trials. And sometimes you think it's so bad, you just can't stand it. You're going to die. And Jesus always delivers you from a trial. He delivered Jesus from this trial, the worst trial that any human being ever faced. He delivered Jesus through it by having him go through it and then resurrect him from the dead. And he became the savior of all of mankind that believe in him. Mark 14:36 adds a detail. In Matthew, Jesus says, My Father. Mark 14 says, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, Abba is an Aramaic or Syriac word, which intimates filial affection and respect and parental tenderness, as Clark says. Now, Abba is the Aramaic word. Father is the Greek, so Abba, the Greek word explains what Abba is. So Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. Now, somebody years ago, I remember when I was a young Christian, got the idea that Abba can be translated daddy. So he's saying, daddy, well, that's a myth. I remember reading a great Christianity Today article. I think it was by the Japanese scholar Yamuchi. I can't remember his name. Edwin Yamuchi. I, I, excuse me. I probably said it wrong. But he just it just blew this myth right out of the water. He says, no, Abba means father, just like the Greek word for pater means father. Pater means father. It means father. It's just a translation of the Greek word father. Now, Having said that, when you say Father, that is expressive of an especially close relationship to God, according to the NIV Study Bible. So, they, you know, the word Abba, I'm sure, has a connotation of being close, but Daddy is more than a connotation. Daddy just trivializes the relationship between God the Father and His children, in my humble opinion. I, I realize translation can be guesswork and artwork. I realize that, but there's something about just everybody going around saying, Daddy, I mean... What what does the average evangelical Christian today think of God? He's a big granddaddy up in the sky dispensing presents as we sit on the couch. And he says, here you go, my child. Here's another present for you. Of course, you're on the couch about to commit fornication with your girlfriend. Oh, that's all right. I still love you, sweetie. I still love you, son. Mark, instead of saying cup, he says, then he went a little further, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Same thing, the cup, the hour. We'll talk about the cup in just a minute. Let's talk, well, let's talk about it right now. John Gill says, quote, All his future sufferings and death, which were at hand, together with the bearing the sins of his people, the enduring the curse of the law and the wrath of God, all which were ingredients in and made up this dreadful bitter cup. This cup of fury, cursing and trembling, called a cup, either in allusion to the nauseous potions given by physicians to their patients, or rather to the cup of poison given to malefactors the sooner to dispatch them, or to that wine mingled with myrrh and frankincense to intoxicate them, that they might not feel their pain. Now, in that fancy language, what Gill is saying, the cup could be referring to medicine, nasty medicine that doctors give their patients, number one, or number two, poison that executioners give to condemn criminals so that they will die, or number three, wine mixed with myrrh to numb the pain of criminals as they were being crucified, as, as what happened with Jesus, they offered him this kind of wine. Whatever it is, it the cup symbolizes, obviously, 
pain, suffering, torturing, horrible stuff. John Gill says he had the wrath of God poured out upon him, and his prayer bespeaks him to be in a condition which neither they nor any mortal creature were ever in. Nobody ever suffered like Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross later on. Here's a good time to quote that famous that favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore all of our sin on the cross, and that bearing of the sin on the cross was a horrible, horrible thing for him. Here's another quote by Adam Clark concerning the word cup. The word cup is frequently used in the sacred writings to point out sorrow, anguish, terror, death. It seems to be an allusion to a very ancient method of punishing criminals. A cup of poison was put into their hands and they were obliged to drink it. Socrates was killed thus, being obliged by the magistrates of Athens to drink a cup of the juice of hemlock. All right, so Jesus says, take this cup away from me. And then we see another parallel in Luke 22, verses 42 through 44, that Jesus sweated drops of blood. Now, I must point out, first of all, that the verses that talk about him sweating drops of blood are missing in some early manuscripts in the NIV makes such a note, and the Holman Christian Study Bible puts the verse in brackets. They don't actually leave it out, but they say it's questionable here. Well, I'm going to assume it's in there just for the because it, it adds to the story. This is Luke chapter 40, chapter 22, verses 42 through 44. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, you notice it doesn't say his sweat was drops of blood. It says his sweat was like drops of blood. Some people have speculated that he was sweating so hard that the pressure in his, in his brow actually popped some capillaries up there and the blood mixed with the sweat and came to the ground. I don't know about that. It, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that he was suffering terribly, whether that verse is in the original autographs or not. I mentioned of the reasons why Jesus might be sweating so bad, might be suffering so bad here. Was it, was it because of his death or his impending torture? The NIV Study Bible agrees with John Gill. Jesus wasn't dreading his death so much. He was rather dreading the taking of mankind's sin on his shoulders. And I think that's probably true. Moving on to Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Now, we're going to go through here and the parallels. We're going to see that... Jesus did this three times. He came back to the he prayed three times, Father, take this cup away from me if it's your will. And then he came back to the disciples and found them sleeping three times. Here's the first time. They came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Now, there's a little, probably a little bit of irony here. You know, you said you weren't going to deny me three times and you, you would die with me. And here you are taking a snooze while I'm going through my, my agony. And he asked Peter, now there were three disciples there, Peter, James, and John, but he asked Peter specifically, probably because Peter was the one that was talking so big before, before they went into the Garden of Gethsemane when they were on the Mount of Olives somewhere. And he was talking real big about he's never going to deny Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, you can't stay away for one hour, huh? As a matter of fact, however, it was quite reasonable that they had fallen asleep. Peter and John had prepared the Passover during the day, all day Thursday. This is uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 8. It says Peter and John did the work. They'd eaten a, a big meal at Passover. Big meals make you sleepy. It was late at night. It was probably up around midnight at this time, says John Gill. They were weighted down with sorrow. Luke chapter 22, verse 45 says, When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping exhausted from their grief. Exhausted from their grief. They were shutting down. And quite frankly, you know, do you really blame them? However, this was the critical point in the history of mankind. And they were sleeping. They just couldn't stay awake. 
And and Jesus, you know, Jesus loved those disciples like crazy, and they loved him like crazy. But it is amazing to me some of the strong words he said to him. I've always been amazed by the six times in Matthew he says, Oh, you of little faith. And now, including Peter, when Peter walks on the water in the middle of a storm, he says, Oh, you of little faith, because he started to sink. And now he's saying, Peter, what you sleeping for, my man? He, he, Jesus, uh, he was tough with his, his disciples. He's tough with us, let's face it. You've turned yourself over to Jesus. He's going to train you. He's going to put you in boot camp. But you'll love him so much you won't care. Matthew 26, verse 41. Jesus tells Peter, James, and John this. Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is pointing out that the disciples are operating in their flesh because they're sleeping. Their spirit, which is their mind, their intention, was to stay awake, obviously, because they're trying to follow Jesus and trying to do what they want to. And Jesus is pointing out to, I don't care how much you want to do something, you can't do it. Your flesh is weak. This is why they needed the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But at any rate, he said, so that you won't enter into temptation, into trial. What kind of trial were they going to face? Being arrested, being chased down by the Jewish authorities. Now, they did manage to avoid that by hiding in Jerusalem after the crucifixion. But, well, that was the physical trial. The, tempta- the mental temptation would be to succumb to the persecution and deny Jesus. That's the temptation. And Peter did succumb to that temptation. Matthew 26, verse 42. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Not my will, but your will. That's the second time. He's saying that there's no way to redeem humanity without me having to do it on the cross. I'll do it, says Adam Clark. And that's basically what he's saying. I I want to redeem humanity, but not by dying like this. It's going to be too bad. Jesus in his humanity is suffering. He was not only God, he was human too. He probably went, Jesus, when he went away and prayed the this, this second time, he probably went away to the same place he was the first time the stones threw away. Matthew chapter 26, verses 43 through 44. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not leave their eyes open. That was the second time he found them sleeping. After leaving them, verse 44, he went again, away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. The same thing being, if it's not your will, God, take this cup away. If it's your will, God, Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through this, but I will if it's if it's your will. All right, so this is the second time that Jesus came and found them sleeping in verse 43. Now Mark, our detail man, adds a little detail here. Mark 14:40. And he came again, this is the second time, and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. I can imagine, oh my gosh, twice he's found us sleeping here. We're supposed to be praying for him. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be killed. And here we are taking a snooze. They didn't know. They couldn't answer him. What can you say? Now, Adam Clark and some other commentators partially blame Satan for this, for putting them to sleep. Well, you can blame Satan for that and say the devil made them do it. But I, or you can just blame natural causes. But they just couldn't stay awake. Because the disciples were sleeping, Jesus had to suffer alone. He needed their support. And instead, he comes and finds them sleeping. One more bad thing that's happening to Jesus this crucifixion night, the night before his crucifixion. So Jesus goes away and prays the third time in verse 44. Take this cup away from me as possible. Notice that three times Jesus prayed that. It is not a lack of faith to pray the same prayer more than once. Now, in the hyper-faith movement, you hear that all the time. Oh, when you pray again, that shows that you don't have faith. And I think to myself, really? Jesus prayed three times. Take this cup away from me. If it's your will. Oh, boy, that drives the... Copenhagenites crazy to pray that way. Jesus prayed that way. This is one of the things that got me running away from the faith message was when I looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh be removed, 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. 
Paul's answer was refused, just like Jesus was. God told Paul the Apostle and Jesus no. Now, if God can tell Paul the Apostle and the Son of God, Jesus, no, when he prays. And how about, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He didn't, Jesus didn't, God didn't forgive them. He destroyed their city in, in AD 70. So Jesus' prayer was not always answered positively, and neither was Paul the Apostle's Paul the Apostles was it answered positively. Sometimes in prayer we have to learn to take no for an answer. Even if it's important a prayer, prayer, oh please, 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 please. Remember that Garth Brooks country song? Thank God for unanswered prayers. Sometimes God knows better than you do when you pray. Alright, so we go now to the next verse, which is verse forty five. Verse forty six, and we'll see Jesus coming back to them for the third time and they're sleeping. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? <laughs> Look, the time is near. What he's saying is, you better quit sleeping because the bad guys are coming and you better not be lying down here sleeping. Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Time for sleeping is over. You slept while I was praying, but you're going to be awake while I'm getting arrested or you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get arrested too. Jesus saw that the priests were coming to arrest him. He probably heard them coming. And he says, being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Who are those sinners? Well, there's a question here of what sinners mean. Sinners sometimes is used in the Jewish way to refer to Gentiles. And so Jesus is saying, oh, here come the sinners. Here come the Gentiles. In other words, the Roman soldiers who were with the, the mob that was coming up there. Adam Clark takes this view referring to the Roman cohort stationed at festival time for the defense of the temple. The other option is that the Jews were just out and out sinners. That's kind of a mild term to call the, the Jews sinners, but, I, but it's true. So I, I tend to think it's not Gentile Romans he's talking about, but he's talking about the Jews and the Romans, everybody who's sinning against the Son of God, getting ready to kill him. When Jesus has said, are you still sleeping and resting? John Gill points out that he's probably using irony here. Oh, you're sleeping and resting? Let's see if you could sleep now that the guards have arrived. I think Gil's probably right. It's, it's amazing how Jesus can talk like that in, in, in this type of situation. Mark 14:41 describes this scene this way. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. In other words, enough sleep. It's over. The time for sleeping is over. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. All right, verse 46 says, Get up, let's go. That doesn't mean let's run. It means let's go meet my betrayer, Judas Iscariot, and the priest and the temple guard who are coming up here to arrest me. Don't run away. Now, Jesus seems very calm now, John Gill points out. Quote, he was now rid of his fears and free from those agonies and dreadful apprehensions of things he was but a little while ago possessed of. That's probably because he prayed so hard. He was able to face with equanimity the horrible trial he was about to go through. He received no for an answer, but he was still. He, he prayed and he was at peace. He was determined to do God's will. Now notice that Jesus voluntarily offered himself to be the sacrifice of the world here as he went to see his accusers and, and people who were going to arrest them. But now some people take that, instead of being a, a good thing, they say he committed suicide. Some skeptics like to say that. Well, he didn't commit suicide. There was no way he could have escaped anyway. He basically said, I'm not going to fight. You come get me and kill me. He defended himself at the trial. He was innocent. Everybody knows he was innocent now. To this day, they know he was innocent. He didn't commit suicide. That's, that is spoken by the mouths of blasphemers and fools and liberals, idiots. That is, he didn't commit suicide. Now, Jesus, how did Jesus know that it was Judas that was coming? 
Well, the disciples must have known it was Judas. Jesus had already predicted at the Last Supper that Judas was going to betray them, the man who puts the bread in the sauce there with Jesus. But Jesus had an exact knowledge of every motion of Judas, according to John Gill, because of his divinity, maybe so. You never know how much he knows from his divinity and how much he knows from his humanity. But at any rate, he knew Jesus was coming. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 49. Here we're going to leave it. Here is where Judas comes up to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. We'll do that in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.